seen a lot of people recently complaining about Trump's travel to his own properties, how much it costs, and how much time he spends away from the White House. I get the frustration, but here's my counter. Would you rather he be at work forwarding his agenda? <laughs> Looks like the Mueller investigation found no direct links between Trump and Russian election meddling. Okay, but let's not forget that foreign governments are meddling in our elections regardless of whether Trump is in on it. What are we going to do about it? I've lived in the St. Louis area for 36 years, and I've never seen anyone do the vertical bagel slice. Not even once. Probably because it's stupid. <laughs> Folks, welcome back to Michael and Us. Luke Savage here, very unprofessionally laughing at our big guest this week. Uh, Mr. Ken Bone, who's sitting across from me here. Unfortunately, Ken Bone had to leave. Uh, oh, shit. Yeah. I thought we had him for longer. Well, he's a busy man. He has 179,000 Twitter followers. Did you know that? He's got merch to sell. Folks, you probably haven't thought about Ken Bone in a while. Uh, you may remember that he was the undecided swing voter who <laughs> t- captured America's hearts for I mean, for I, I haven't stopped thinking about him. <laughs> that was a, a great cycle because you remember he, he appeared and there was that one day day when everybody loved Ken Bone and you know within a week he was already monetizing his brand he was like selling Ken Bone sweaters yeah so the Ken Bone arc I found an old tweet of mine from 2017 which captures the Ken Bone arc uh you know a symphony in four movements movement one everyone loves Ken Bone presidential debate questioner day two America needed a hero Ken Bone answered the call that was from the Washington Post uh, day three, Ken Bone forgot to delete his Reddit porn comments, said Trayvon Martin killing was justified. <laughs> and then finally, uh, it's official. Join Ken Bone 18 and the rest of the team at CPAC. See you there. <laughs> <laughs> I read a couple of his tweets just earlier because, as I said, he has 179,000 Twitter followers, still very much an influencer and in certain, uh, I guess, sections <laughs> of the Internet. People who forgot to unfollow him long ago. And he seems to be, I would say, in the center. (laughs) You don't say. Yeah. That's just a prelude to the movie that we watched this week. We'll be getting to that in a moment. Uh, But first, you know, it was another big week in the wild world of politics. Diamond Joe Biden is in the race officially. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna do a proper Biden up at some point because uh, favorable, you know, I assume. Well, yeah, friend of the show, uh, Branko Markatich, my colleague from Jacobin, who we had on for the Charter School Confidential episode. Uh, I mean, he's Biden's number one fan, and uh, I think it would be extremely dishonorable of us to talk about Diamond Joe without Bronco present. So we'll uh, we'll do that sometime in the near future. But one other candidate has shot to the top of polls. No, he hasn't. <laughs> you had your your Beto O'Rourke's, you had your Kamala Harris's. Various people have have sort of come in and out, but it seems that the Democratic Party is really rallying around this new figure who I hadn't heard about a month ago. His name is Mayor Pete. I actually still don't know how to pronounce. Because here's the thing: I don't watch CNN. I only see the names. You know, I don't know how to pronounce them. Do you know how to pronounce his last name yet? Not really. Mayor Pete. Yeah, so I think it's safe to say that there's been kind of a cycle in the kind of early stage of the Democratic primary, which is that the anti-Bernie wing of the party, which has a considerable elite constituency and a much smaller popular constituency, is 
basically cycling. Maybe I've even said this on a previous episode. This is this is how it's been, and this is how it's going to be for the next you know twelve months or more. It's going to be an endless cycling through these personalities that are the non-Bernie ones, and they're going to try everything. You know, they were trying it with Beto. They thought, okay. You know, the consultant class was like, hey, we've got this guy who's just this perfect cipher. He's kind of got this progressive reputation, but he's from Texas. And I guess they didn't bother to look into his record or they thought no one would care. They also just thought that, you know, just gifts of him on a skateboard, were, that was going to win over millennials or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't quite go as expected. And it turns out even his big fundraising numbers, he kind of padded them. So he didn't actually outraise, uh, fundraise Sanders at the start of the campaign. And there will be many more, you know, Beto-like uh, characters to emerge, I'm sure. The latest of which, as you said, is Mayor Pete. And I think that the biggest indication that Mayor Pete is kind of a... I mean, when I say serious, I don't actually mean serious because he's not. But there was an attempt to set him up as a serious contender. The biggest indication was this recent report in the New York Times, which uh, I mentioned in a recent Jacobin article I wrote. And this was a paragraph from the New New York Times article, which I don't think has gotten adequate attention. The matter of what to do about Bernie and the larger imperative of party unity has, for example, hovered over a series of previously undisclosed Democratic dinners in New York and Washington organized by the longtime party financier Bernard Schwartz. The gatherings have included scores from the moderate or center-left wing of the party, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senator Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, former Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, himself a presidential candidate, and the president of the Center for American Progress, Nira Tandon. So, friends of the show all. I mean, to me, this is quite significant. It's a bunch of Democratic power brokers and donors meeting behind the scenes with, you know, one presidential candidate to kind of try to defeat another one before anyone's cast. I mean, as I said in the article, can you think of a better illustration of Bernie Sanders' critique of the Democratic Party of American politics more broadly than a bunch of party elites kind of meeting at secretive fundraisers with donors Mm -hmm. to, to kind of try to, you know, tilt the process before anyone's cast a vote. As that article points out, a lot of these high ranking Democrats are stymied by the irresolvable problem that anything they do can become fodder for Sanders. What I loved about, you know, they were all quoted, you know, people like David Brock were quoted to that effect in the article, but none of them seem able to, or capable, I should say, of considering the possibility that the reason the critique is effective is because it's true. Mm-hmm. Like they, they clearly just see it in political messaging terms. They're not actually able to understand why, like why would anybody have a problem us all just meeting behind the scenes to <laughs> yeah. decide. I can't remember which, um, you know, Democratic hack famously bragged that, you know, just a few hundred people in Washington basically decide who the nominee of both major parties are. I think are. it was, was it not the guy who wrote the Game Change book? Mark, Mark Halpern, yeah. yeah it's, I, think it, I think it was Mark Halpern. But that is how a lot of these people see this, and the primary is just sort of bread and circuses, you know, for the plebs. But there's something else that I think has occurred to me around the Mayor Pete phenomenon, and that's that, as with Beto, I think that his candidacy is kind of an illustration of the extent to which political consultants, political elites hold the average person in just utter contempt. (laughs) See voters as these kind of consumer blocks to be harvested with like just the shallowest pandering. You know, so with Beto, if you remember in the Vanity Fair profile, it was it was riddled with sentences like, you know, he's 
you know, has a characteristic Gen X sensibility of, of a suspicion for the rules and like that kind of stuff. Put you know. David Brent is refreshingly laid back for a man <laughs> right. with such responsibility. Right, right, right. And with Mayor Pete, I feel like there's something similar going on, but he is a consultant's dream even more than Beto because he's got so, he ticks so many boxes. And that's what this is about because these people, these consultants really do see candidates like products. They think voters can be neatly put into these little boxes and you just got to harvest, you got to gather enough of the boxes together and that's how you win an election. So with Mayor Pete, you know, it helps that some of the boxes are, you know, they're they're the types of things that you don't usually find in the same signifiers that, that can unite red and blue America. So you got, he's a troop. He's a Democrat, but he's from the Midwest and he's from a small town. So he brings the wisdom of the hinterland. Mm. You know, he's a thoroughly conventional politician, but because he's not actually from Washington, you can say he's an outsider. He's gay, but he's also a man of faith. Um, so you get articles about how could Mayor Pete reclaim Christianity for the left and, and stuff like that. Anyways, with Mayor Pete, I really think the plan is to kind of package him like uh, lots of previous Democrats have been packaged. This is kind of one of the formulas for winning the Democratic primary and winning the presidency. The candidate who is basically a conventional politician, but who kind of comes from the outside geographically or, or, or otherwise, and who is not seen to be of Washington. So you can see how in how many instances that applies, right? You know, Barack Obama, the junior senator from, from Illinois, is not actually all that different from Hillary Clinton, save his vote on the Iraq war, which wasn't in the U.S. Senate anyway. Bill Clinton is another one, right? Thoroughly conventional politician, but it's like he's a Democrat with a Southern drawl, but he's also a Rhodes. Have you heard anything so, you know, <laughs> ridiculous? A guy who speaks like that, but he's smart. You know, there was that. There was Jimmy Carter, who was, you know, the man from Plains, who was coming to bring the folksy wisdom of the real America to those elites in Washington. I think they're really trying to do something similar with Mayor Pete, which is why there's been this kind of just flood of utterly vapid commentary on him right down to this thing. I don't know if you saw it in New York Magazine, where it was just his favorite consumer products with Amazon links embedded so you could buy them yourself. Yeah, I think we talked about that on a recent episode, right? right. right? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. you can you can get, you know, Mayor Pete's favorite beef jerky that he used right. when he was a troop. And you too can be a troop, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, I think that's the plan. And I just want to read this passage from the you know, magisterial, all about Pete current affairs essay. The whole essay is worth reading, but I think to me, these are the three paragraphs. And they're important to keep in mind, not just in relation to Mayor Pete, but in relation to, to all the other Mayor Pete's that will surely come. So this is from the essay. Always watch for the qualifiers. The Times says Buttigieg is a man of quiet rebellion. A quiet rebellion is not a rebellion. In his own understated way, he is suggesting a sharp break with the past. Suggesting understated. These words mean he is not actually a break with the past. <laughs> Another quote from the Times. Ideologically, Mr. Buttigieg is a progressive, sometimes an adventurous one, sometimes. At the very least, Axelrod said, Buttigieg was likely to emerge from this, an interesting voice from his generation. Interesting, the fallback word for when something has no meaningful other qualities worthy of note. Demand the evidence, examine the record. We have got to learn to see through this stuff. You have to look at what they did and said before it was politically opportune to say what they're saying now. Five minutes ago, Pete Buttigieg was the management consultant making the South Bend sewers run on time. Now he's suddenly a radical who wants to pack the Supreme Court. From Mitt Romney to Eugene Debs in a single news cycle. 
Why? Why have I spent so long talking about the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, an underdog candidate for the presidency? Why have I been so relentlessly negative? Because I see what this is, and I see how these things go, and we can't afford to make this mistake again. No more bright young people with their beautiful families and flawless characters and elite education and vacuous messages of uplift and togetherness. Give me fucked up people with convictions and gusto. Give me real human beings, not CV padding corporate zombies. Anyway, I'm sure there will be lots more to say about this in the months ahead, unfortunately, because uh, I have a feeling that the Mayor Pete thing is going to be with us for a while. Uh, I've actually been doing some research into his, uh, into how he governs South Bend, which is an interesting thing we should talk about at some point. But sticking with the theme of the episode, which is really the wisdom of the real America, let's turn to our film for the episode. What kind of kid would rather sit in a crummy classroom than be out here? What kind of father goes fishing when he should be looking for a new job? Fine. Fine. Don't forget today. What's today? Election day, dummy. Well, I'm not even registered. I registered for you in the mail. Well, that's great. I could get jury duty now. Mr. Johnson, your vote didn't count. You're entitled to recast your ballot in a timely manner. How about I just whisper it to you then? Right here, we get over with right now, and you can listen to it. <sighs> Those men last night? Let's not tell anybody about that. Got it. A single or regular ballot is holding up a final decision for the American presidency. So many. One American citizen will effectively choose the next president of the United States. This is OJ Big. Well, if you're tired of shiny, machine-made people and you want fucked-up guys with convictions, I offer you Bud Johnson, the protagonist of the 2008 film Swing Vote, starring Kevin Costner, and also produced by Kevin Costner and partly self-financed by Kevin Costner. He self-financed this movie. The, the powers that be did not want you folks to see this film, but Kevin Costner knew better. The message of this film was just so urgent that he had to get it out <laughs> during the 2008 election cycle. So I hadn't even heard of this film before tonight, and, and we were discussing all the different things we could we could do. We did what we often do, which is Google political movies. <laughs> no, that's not true. We, we have a process. It's much more formal than that. There's a college of electors which decides. <laughs> and tonight, uh, they opted to give us this movie, Swing Vote. It was, in fact, it was a, a single voter in New Mexico who made the decision <laughs> that this was going to be our film. I hadn't heard of this film uh, before tonight but i think you know along with man of the year and a few other you know top tier michael and us choices th this film i felt like was made for our podcast it's part of my favorite genre of movie which is the non-partisan political <laughs> satire yeah the politics <laughs> what a concept genre it takes place in New Mexico where Bud Johnson is just a working class, a working poor man, works uh, on an assembly line at a factory, totally apolitical, but he has a Lisa Simpson-like <laughs> daughter who is very civically engaged. Big election is coming up. She keeps insisting to him, Dad, you've got to vote. I've registered you to vote. He doesn't want to vote. He's never voted in his life. What does he care? No matter who wins, Democrat or Republican, nothing's going to change. Uh, I'm still not going to be able to afford my insulin, etc. He's got he's got this great kind of pastiche of grievances, which are sort of total ambivalence and also sort of like 
class conscious, like savvy, like, oh, well, they're all the same because they're elites and, you know, they don't care about the working poor. But then also he's just completely ambivalent and all over the map. Oh, and something else that he shares with the protagonist from Man of the Year is that he's <laughs> sort of casually racist. So so there's a lot of stuff in the movie about, oh, yeah, Mexicans are just crossing our borders and stealing our jobs. And this is a big problem. And you forget that 10 years ago, this was a bipartisan issue, right? <laughs> Both Democrats and Republicans were fear-mongering about the flood of foreign invaders. Uh-huh, including border. including several uh, several current presidential contenders as well. Uh, people who voted for the border fence <laughs> in, in 2006, was it? So in a plot twist that was perhaps inspired by one of my favorite cartoons, Popeye for President... <laughs> You'll recall in that cartoon, Popeye and Bluto are each running for president. And uh uh-oh, it's a tie. And the tie-breaking vote, olive oil. But would you believe it? Olive oil is too busy with her farm chores that day. So Popeye and Bluto have to compete to help her do her chores. (laughs) One of my favorite cartoons. We need to do a Popeye episode sometime. (laughs) Yeah. Popeye is a true working class hero. And he's always challenging conventional beauty standards. So surprised the left hasn't embraced him. I like him because he hits his macros with spinach, just like me. <laughs> so the night of the election, Costner uh, forgets to go to the polls. Because he's because he's down at the pub. And he's drunk. And his daughter is so upset and so frustrated, she decides to commit voter fraud. She goes in and is clearly an underfunded polling station. The guy manning it is asleep. You need a lot of setup to make this premise work. Yeah. It's a Rube Goldberg contraption of a plot <laughs> where she, you know, forges his signature when when people aren't looking. Uh, but then, like, doesn't, like, go and cast a ballot, I guess? It doesn't. So what she forges his signature to make it look like he voted. I don't know why. And Because she's ashamed. And then later that night, it turns out that the election is tied. Uh, And it all comes down to this one county. The authorities come to Costner's little house and tell him, well, it looks like we didn't count your vote. We made a big screw up and we're going to have to get you to redo your vote because the election is literally tied. It's down to this. New Mexico's five electoral votes are going to swing it between is it going to be President uh, Kelsey Grammer for a second term or President Dennis Hopper, the Democrat? And the feds don't realize that voter fraud has been committed. And Costner and his daughter hide this fact. So in in 10 days, he's going to cast this big vote. And a local reporter finds out that he's the tie-breaking vote, breaks the story. All of a sudden, the national news media has converged on this little town in New Mexico. And both presidential candidates have descended to court him. Most of the movie consists of this sort of mini-campaign where... You know, Kelsey Grammer has him on Air Force One and talks about football and gives him like beer. And then Dennis Hopper has him to some kind of elite soiree where he gets Willie Nelson to play because the Kevin Costner character, part of his backstory for some reason is that he used to be in a Willie Nelson cover band. I I mean, you know, I, I hate to say that you flubbed the detail of the plot. But we see Willie Nelson on TV, but then... He gets his band out of prison right. to come and play. 
and then we actually get to hear them play Kevin Costner sing. Which is a bit like, as you pointed out, in Sicilian Vampire, when Frank D'Angelo <laughs> sings just a gigolo. It's just a shameless vanity project. We're, we're going to have to, nobody's going to get that reference, but we're, we're going to have to, we've not... The, the real Will Sloan fans will get that Yeah, reference. yeah, that's, I don't know how significant a constituency of our listeners that is, <laughs> but uh, if people want to know what we're talking about, real Michael and us deep cut, go to YouTube right now, pa- pause the episode, go to YouTube, YouTube, type in uh, Frank D'Angelo Sicilian Vampire Gigolo and uh, just have a great time. But what it reminded me of was uh, we recently watched as part of our, you know, Mike Myers trilogy uh, experience. We watched uh, Austin Powers Goldmember and uh, beautiful film. And it's that's that's the one where uh, there's like a song that I guess Mike Myers wrote that's uh, like Daddy wasn't Daddy there. wasn't there. <laughs> and and Mike Myers is clearly taking it a little bit too soon. You, you you see a little too much of the song. There's a whole scene built around him doing the song, and I think it was on the soundtrack. And you can tell similarly with this that you know Kevin Costner is kind of. Uh, he he really wanted to show that he had some you know musical chops in this movie. Something that I find very charming about this movie is that it is just like a vanity project beyond all reason. There, there's a NASCAR driver he wanted to meet who shows up to the house for no particular reason. Yeah, it's Richard Petty who drives him to meet the president. Sure, why and not? you can you can tell that this scene is just in the movie because Kevin Costner thought it would be cool to ride you know with a NASCAR driver. The movie is very heavily invested in Kevin Costner as this charming guy who you want to spend a lot of time with. It, it likes him a little too much because even the movie can't like it. It fail. It tries and fails to convince you that underneath it all, he's a good dad. Except he's clearly not a good dad. Oh yeah, he's he's a he's a monster yeah. of a father. He's an alcoholic. Uh, he's just never. He uh, daddy wasn't there. You know, he never he never shows up. Yeah, he never shows up at anything. And at the eleventh hour, it tries to redeem him by showing us his ex wife who is even more... Yeah, who's like a drug addict uh, yeah, or something. A, yeah, a, a drug addict. And, and that's supposed to give us sympathy for him because, well, at least he's not as bad as I, her. I think, that's kind of, I think that's an ugly scene. And I think it's uh, that's maybe the only genuinely ugly scene in the movie. Um, and I also just think... I mean, that came, what, 15 minutes before the end? Oh, and yeah. just, like, st- structurally, uh, that is it is too late in the movie to introduce a detail like that because I don't think the film has even suggest it's not clear why he's a single dad until that point and by the way 15 minutes before the end of the movie is significant because this is a two-hour movie and you really feel every second of it yeah we're, we're working hard for those patreon <laughs> bucks folks the dynamic between costner and his daughter is basically you know homer and lisa simpson and you can imagine this story being told as a 20-minute simpsons episode better you know yeah, funnier less pretentious yeah a solid hour in the middle of this movie where no new information is introduced. Mm. It's just the same couple of things over and over. The big, I guess, satiric volley of the film is that now that these two candidates are campaigning specifically for Kevin Costner, they're totally tailoring their message just for him and they lose sight of what their real principles are. So Kelsey Grammer as the Republican is all of a sudden campaigning for the environment and it's misinterpreted somebody asks costner are you pro-life and he says sure i like life you know i like living it's great and so dennis hopper the democrat does a commercial against abortion Uh now there's something in this premise that like could be funny 
Like it could be funny if they committed to the bit and, you know, these were just two absolutely craven opportunists who, you know, destroy their own parties with no remorse. But the movie wants us to think that these are actually two really principled guys who, you yeah, know, which doesn't who, make sense like Bullworth, just lost touch with with their principles. It's it's very man of the year in setting up this this grand premise and then refusing to follow through on mm-hmm. it because it's not really clear what satiric point, if any, this this conceit that you just described is is making. Is this a satire of American elections in general? Is it meant to point out that? elections pander to these you know rube swing voters and so they go towards the lowest common denominator i thought for a time the film was going to kind of converge on some kind of you know bipartisan kind of message at the end you know it turns out that you know america contains multitudes and this this character showcases this or something like that but um it won't even do that there's just no there's no there there there's a good cynical comedy premise here somewhere where the election falls on this one guy who's just a completely uninformed easily persuadable dope and these two craven opportunists pursue it and it's just all about this shambolic system it would be cynical and, and you know you may or may not agree with it but it would really commit to the premise but it tries to have it both ways. It tries to suggest that this guy, this Kevin Costner character, who's kind of dumb and kind of a rube, that he's this everyman. But that there's also something that it doesn't quite explain that's fundamentally noble about him as an everyman. Yeah, it can't. It, it yeah, it can't. It tries to kind of have its cake and eat it too. You know what scene I really liked, incidentally, was the one where. Uh, you know, he's finally feeling the weight of this decision and he walks into the local uh, saloon or whatever and, and the whole town is gathered there and they're watching uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, which is so funny because I love the idea that in this rural New Mexico, they're all watching HBO. Yeah, and Bill Maher specifically. I'm President Boone and I approved this message for Bud Johnson. Bud, I'd like you to meet a few friends of mine. They're our doctors and our peace officers. They teach our children... They serve nobly in our armed forces. For too long, homosexual Americans have been persecuted by the country they love. That's why this president, if re-elected, will implement the Open Door Initiative. Gay Americans, men and women alike, will be able to proudly step out of the closet and onto the altar to exchange the sacred vows enjoyed by the rest of us. But with your help, this Republican administration will say, I do. To gay marriage. So as with so many films we watch for this podcast, there really is no rhyme or reason to it. It's sort of trying to be too many things at once, and there are no real stakes, uh, as evidenced by the ending, which we'll get to in a second. Theoretically, there should be stakes, and yet there aren't. (laughs) Like, it's a movie about a man who's going to decide an election, and somehow it feels like there are no stakes. And the dialogue, like Man of the Year, it's full of people giving these conventional wisdom, like, huh, you know, elections are decided on television, or... (laughs) God, you know, what matters in television is is sensation. It's and the pe- ratings. <laughs> people will flip the channels. And like Man of the Year, it's as if, you know, you took the normiest boomer tweet and just spent a year of your life and countless millions of dollars turning it into a movie, you know? It's it's such an awe-inspiring waste of time and resources. Yeah, the only thing it was missing was Minions. <laughs> 
There were some other celebrity cameos. We mentioned Bill Maher. Uh, Ariana Huffington makes an appearance. Oh, my God. Tucker Carlson. Oh, yeah. There's a montage uh, of, like, you know, Chris Matthews and those guys, mm-hmm. you know. It very much has that uh, capital P political audience that it's targeting where it's like, hey, uh, this is a movie about politics. And see this? Uh-huh. These are these are people from the news. But it's in a movie. That reminds me of my favorite scene in Batman versus Superman <laughs> where Charlie Rose says, does Superman matter? <laughs> <laughs> I basically think that unless it's a very special role or it's actually funny, I mean, those are, I guess, pretty big qualifiers, but like, you know, you should not be, if you take your job seriously and you're like an anchor or something, you shouldn't be doing these fucking So movies. excited to be in a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the movie climaxes with, for some reason, Kevin Costner leading a presidential debate. Right. They're going to have a debate moderated by him that's just for him. And it's at the local rodeo, basically. Sure. Even within the shaky logic of this premise, I cannot fathom that the American political establishment is somehow going to allow this guy to moderate a debate. Where's the Supreme Court on this? That's what (laughs) I want to know. Also, aren't there recounts happening in this election? it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, uh, what? (laughs) the other loophole is, what if at the end of the movie, he's like, okay, uh, I'm going to write in Ross Perot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're still tied. Yeah. I'm voting Gary Johnson. Yeah, there are a whole slew of third party (laughs) candidates he can choose from. I talked to Susan Sarandon, I'm voting... Voting for Jill. Also, theoretically, if he's already voted and they just didn't count his vote, why would he need this long period to decide? Yeah, why did they give him 10 days? How's that been decided? It's ridiculous. Okay, but anyway, there's this scene where he's about to launch into this debate. The two candidates are on stage and he gives his, you know, Charlie Chaplin in the Great Dictator <laughs> speech where, you know, it basically comes down to, I was a disengaged voter, I've been a fuck up my whole life, and I'm what's wrong with America. Because <laughs> in America, we should we should care about the government, and we should care about politics and, and all the political things. Which is very funny, because we spent the previous 110 minutes being told that this system is just a sham, the, there are no differences between the Republicans and the Democrats, that they hold their voters with utter contempt. Also that, like, it's not clear what this election is about at all. Like, yeah. what were the issues? What was the campaign? What are the two candidates, like, running on? We Nothing. are the people. <laughs> we are. We are the people. Yeah. For no reason, he decides, well, actually, this system that we spent the whole movie saying is is fundamentally corrupt is something you should actually care about. Right. And all of a sudden, the movie, you know, the movie via the the conduit of Kevin Costner wants us to believe that actually Dennis Hopper and Kelsey Grammer are both upstanding gentlemen, which we've seen throughout the film that they're totally unprincipled swine who just want to win. And, he, you know, he says, you know, I just want to let you know, guys know I've been... It's been an honor to get to meet both of you, and you're both, you know, extraordinary individuals or whatever. You know, there's a great scene where every scene's great in this movie, but there's a scene where Kelsey Grammer is quietly talking with his chief campaign advisor, Stanley Tucci. And Tucci says, You know, you've got to understand that this moment, this is a historic moment. People will remember this forever. This is what decides whether you get to finish what you started. And what did he start? Like tax cuts for the rich? I right, mean, he's, I mean, he's a Republican. <laughs> yeah, what was he doing? The movie just assumes that whatever it was was noble. Yeah, because, right. <laughs> be, be, because, because politics, he's the president. Yeah, it's the president and politics is an inherently noble enterprise. So after Costner gives this long speech, 
He then says, you know, I've decided that I'm going to speak for the voiceless. Instead of giving my questions, then he pulls out like five bags of right. He's, you know, children's he, letters to he, Santa. He does the 2008 equivalent of reading the comment section to <laughs> like from like, you know, the Newsweek website or something he, to, uh, to the presidential <laughs> candidates. He pulls out this letter at random, which is as perfect a letter as you could get. It is like algorithmically generated yeah yeah like a dad who's a veteran in kansas who's our family's just trying to make ends meet dear sir and my wife and i each have two jobs and sometimes we don't make ends meet we can't afford our medication (laughs) and and how would you deal with this and you know kelsey grammar's on stage and he says you know that's a good question you know and then the camera just just pans up because (laughs) because the answer doesn't matter and then and then the movie ends just as gloriously as it began as as Kevin Costner, the spirit of America, walks into the voting booth in slow-mo. The uh, reporter who's kind of formed the B story in the movie is kind of, you know, looking on and smiling. So's the daughter. <laughs> he goes into the voting booth, fade to black. The movie ends. Does it matter who he votes for? No, because, <laughs> because the journey was more important than the destination. And ultimately, you know, Costner hasn't evolved at all because at the start he was saying it doesn't matter who you vote for. <laughs> and then finally, the movie validates that point of view. <laughs> America, what a concept. My first question comes from Peter Mathis in Henderson, Kentucky. Dear Mr. Johnson, my wife and I have three little girls. We both work two jobs just trying to make ends meet. And some weeks, we don't make it. When you work hard and still can't take care of your family, you start to question yourself as a provider, as a man. I know I am one. I fought for my country and I'm proud of it. But it scares me to think about what would happen if one of my kids got sick. Can you ask the candidates, if we are the richest country in the world, How come so many of us can barely afford to live here? I'd like to take that one first, if I might, Mr. Greenlee. Go ahead, Mr. President. But I'd first like to say how much I appreciate your thoughtfulness. I'd like to turn our attention to the wild world of showbiz for a sec. Showbiz, I think, really ought to be our safe space. <laughs> it's, it's a place where politics should not intervene. You know, the, the, the people who make movies, who make TV, they make entertainment for us, and it's very nice of them, and I think that we should appreciate that. Um, the big news this week is the, the new Avengers movie. This is a bit of a digression, but I thought it was really funny, and I wanted to share it. Someone I know who works at a repertory cinema in Toronto he was tweeting about, you know, d- d- does anyone else who runs a repertory cinema, have you been getting like weird phone calls from Marvel fanboys asking mm. why we're not playing the Avengers this week? And and he was saying like, you know, I'm trying to explain to these guys that that's not how like repertory cinemas don't show, you know, the first run movies, but they seem to think there's some political conspiracy. Like, what are you, why are you, why are you keeping this from us? And you know, the, the handful of critics who haven't given good reviews to the Avengers movie are being like doxxed on Twitter and stuff. There's this like free floating, like it's not exactly class conscious, but it's like class tinged somehow. Like people who think that there's this establishment out there who are out there to like stop this. I, uh, a while ago, I guess when Suicide Squad was in the theaters, I saw that I think it was on the cover of the Toronto Sun. Uh, which oh, is for I, those who I don't know, this. right, right, is is like a sort of right wing tabloid here in Toronto. 
it had uh, this cover that was like Suicide Squad. You loved it, and the critics hated it, or whatever. The you divide know? is getting worse. Right, right. But I love the fake populism of that. It's like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take the critics who didn't like your superhero <laughs> the movie elite for children. Yeah. The elite critics who are getting paid. or if that. Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) Unless they're Peter Travers, but he probably liked it. He probably said, what's the movie? The Avengers? Yeah. Pulse Pounding Thrill Ride. (laughs) Right, right. One of my favorite Peter Travers reviews was when he said, um, (laughs) the first commandment of dogma, thou shalt not stop laughing. (laughs) Opening line of his review. (laughs) Just fishing to be quoted on a poster. We've talked about it before, but the, the Peter Travers thing... Uh, where his review of The Dark Knight Rises, oh, where he just says, like, that review was the movie review equivalent of this movie we just watched. Because it's just like, uh, is Nolan equating Bane's Rebellion with Occupy Wall Street? You be the judge. Yeah, you be the judge. That's no, like, how about you? You're, you're the critic, asshole. Yeah. You're getting paid. Tell us. Yeah. <laughs> Something else that's been happening in the wild world of showbiz that maybe I can find a way to link to this is, have you seen this week these celebrities who have been fighting back against the bloggers? I have not. Ariana Grande, I think, and Justin Bieber were both piling on one or two like Twitter bloggers who insulted them in some way. And then just today, I saw this amazing like long Twitter essay by Olivia Munn, who was complaining about these two women who run this website this like fashion criticism website where among other things they rate things on a scale where stuff will be called fugly and olivia munn did this long post about how all of that is internalized sexism because they uh insulted one of her dresses and i think it is so funny like the celebs are striking back you know (laughs) They're becoming politicized. Incidentally, this reminds me of one of my least favorite micro genres, which is that thing where you have a celebrity on like Letterman, or I guess not Letterman anymore, but Kimmel or let's say or whatever, or Jimmy Fallon. And they it's like them reading mean tweets oh about them God, or mean yeah. comments or whatever. And that I guess that's supposed to be funny. Ariana Grande's fans are now just in enormous numbers harassing these bloggers, sending them messages like, you know, you should die, you should be raped, you know, like awful, awful things. And, you know, what's interesting about that is a lot of them use this language of you're such a bully, you're a cyber bully going after Ariana, you should be killed. Hmm, that you, wow, using the language of social justice to shield power. Where have we seen that before? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and, you know, if only we could use this class resentment and harness it into class consciousness, <laughs> then then we might get something. Then there would be no more Avengers movies, finally. <laughs> <laughs> All this reminds me of that that great tweet. I can't remember uh, whose it was from, from a while ago. That Tell me what you think, but I, I think this is an all-too-real possibility. The tweet was speculating that... In the near future, someone's going to try to do, like, anti-monopoly stuff in the United States. Imagine, like, a Bernie Sanders administration tries to break up, you know, Disney or something. Imagine what Disney would do. They would unleash the Star Wars fans or something. But, like, actually... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They'd be like, the government is coming to take away, you know, your vintage Millennium Falcon toy or whatever... Your Lando Calrissian collector's action figure. The following is a paid advertisement from Disney. Hey, it's Spider-Man here. Don't you love me? Don't you love it when I hang out with Wolverine? I I want you to vote yes on Proposition 69. Your congressman doesn't want me to hang out with Wolverine anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally not cool. (laughs) Now watch this drive. 